Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Few, if any, modern-day political figures have had more written about them than Henry Kissinger. From his own three-volume, almost 4,000-page memoir to scores of books and articles. So why another, we might ask our guest, historian Neil Ferguson? Partly because beyond the policy and papers, in Ferguson's view, Kissinger personified that George Bernard Shaw quote, that some men see things as they are and say why, while others dream things that never were and ask why not. That vision, that idealism, as it were, is hard to imagine in someone so vilified by contemporary history. Neil Ferguson tries to square that circle in the first volume of his biography of Henry Kissinger, Kissinger the Idealist. Neil Ferguson is one of the world's leading historians. He's the author of Paper and Iron, The House of Rothschild, The Pity of War, and The Ascent of Money. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's the recipient of many awards for both history and journalism. And it is my pleasure to welcome Neil Ferguson here to talk about Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist. Neil Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Great to have you here. Certainly there are uh, many subjects that you could have written about, Neil. Why Kissinger, and what was it about this project that made you take it on? Well, it's it's true that I, I hesitated about it. The idea came from him. He suggested many years ago, now more than 10 years ago, that I might think of writing a a scholarly biography based partly on his private papers, and I have to admit my first reaction was no way, uh, because it seemed A, like it would be a huge amount of work, and B, that whatever I did and however hard I worked, Christopher Hitchens would write a really nasty review, and <laughs> I, 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 I thought, I, I, do I really need this? Um, plus, it, it took me into a realm that I wouldn't at all call my my natural habitat U.S. foreign policy, but he he then revealed his diplomatic skills uh, by by writing to me and saying what a pity just after I found 150 boxes of my private papers that I thought had been lost and I I did fall for that and and thought I'd better go and have a look just in case so I went and had a look at the stuff and it was just so riveting and so unexpected and, and so different from what I had been uh, led to expect from Henry Kissinger that I decided I would take it on and just accept the risk of, of the Hitchens review. Sadly, of course, I took so long to write it that, that Chris Hitchens sadly uh, died and, and wasn't there to review it. Uh, but there were other people standing by to write that kind of review. Um, I, I was right about that. And I was right that it was a huge, huge amount of work. But I, I, I think at the time, and I still feel this today, that there were few subjects which were authentically American subjects that I was better qualified to write about. You can tell from my funny accent that I'm not a Native American, even though I've now lived and worked here for 14 years. I, I felt that because Kissinger started out in Europe and came from a German Jewish family, that I was well qualified to, to understand his point of origin, having worked a lot on German Jewish history earlier in my career. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I felt that writing a, a book which essentially dealt with the Cold War was a natural next step for me, because I'd written about World War I, I'd written about World War II, first, The Pity of War, then 
the war of the world. And here was a, a life defined by the Cold War. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm glad I took it on. I've, I've actually found it an absolutely fascinating project, and I've learned a ton from plowing through thousands and thousands of pages written by the younger Henry Kissinger. It's interesting that you talk about the Cold War as, as the, certainly the frame of all of this, because so much of what has been written about Kissinger, so much of the reason he is so vilified, has to do with, with Vietnam, it has to do with specific incidents and things that happened without really looking at the broader frame of, of the Cold War and how Kissinger viewed that. I think that's absolutely right. If you read Christopher Hitchens's hatchet job, uh, The Trial of Henry Kissinger, which really grew out of a series of, of articles and, and isn't at all well researched. Um, I, mean, I was friends with Hitch and had great fun with him, but, but I, I don't think even he would claim that he was a great historian. What's really striking is that the Soviet Union isn't there at all. And the various charges against Kissinger, whether it's Vietnam, Cambodia, Chile, the, the specific issues about which uh, Hitchens takes him to task, you have no sense of the Cold War context. You have no sense that the central problem of the Nixon and Ford administrations was an increasingly assertive and aggressive Soviet Union seeking to influence wider and wider sections of what was then called the Third World. Uh, that's just not there. And what I'm trying to do is, is for a new generation of readers as well as the older generation, just to explain what the Cold War was, because after all, it's been a long time now. Um, my students have no f memory of the Cold War. It was, uh, it was a long time before they became aware. And so I'm, I'm partly motivated by a desire to rethink the Cold War, and at the beginning of the next volume, my task is to set the scene. It's January 1969. Nixon's about to be inaugurated. Kissinger's got his new office in the White House. Uh, what on earth are they going to do? They are in such a mess. Johnson has got them embroiled in this war in uh, Vietnam that, that Kissinger, as early as 1965, realizes is unwinnable. And the Soviets are making gains all over the map. The United States, by comparison, seems to be heading for domestic crisis. There are riots in the streets and on the campuses. And the economy is, is clearly heading for stagflation. It's a fascinating moment that we've kind of forgotten because we're so sure that our own time is a time of unprecedented turmoil and polarization. We, we actually need to be reminded that it was much worse then. Right. And the situation today, by comparison, is... Uh, is one that uh, uh, I think Nixon and Kissinger would have taken in a heartbeat if they'd been offered it. One of the things that drove Kissinger, it seems, from what you write about, from his earliest time as, as a refugee coming to the U.S. from Germany, was, was a kind of belief in democracy, but even more than that, this sense that has a very contemporary feel of kind of American exceptionalism. Talk about that, Neil. I think if you grew up, as Kissinger did in in a Germany that was gradually and then very rapidly shifting uh, to the dark side. If you fled that country at the age of 15, uh, just in time to avoid a rapid escalation of the anti-Semitic policies of the Third Reich, and arrived in the United States with nothing, and found yourself through a combination of hard work, he worked in a shaving brush factory and hard study, he studied nights, able to get to college, 
able to enjoy all the things that had been denied you back in Germany, the simple pleasures of going to watch sports, you quickly formed uh, a relationship uh, with the United States. At first, he's ambivalent. There's a wonderful letter he writes. Shortly after his arrival, he sort of criticizes all the things about New York that he doesn't like. But once he served in the U.S. Army, and I think that's the formative experience of his life, and once he's participated in the liberation of Germany, because remember, he's back there. Six years after he left, he's back in a U.S. uniform. Uh, he's present at the liberation of, concentration of, of a concentration camp. He then stays on during the occupation to participate in this transformation of Germany. By that time, he is convinced that the United States is the last great hope of humanity and that the project of democracy and individual freedom is a project for which it is worth risking your life. And, and one of the reasons I called the book The Idealist, which is a subtitle not many people expected, since it's the opposite, really, of how Kissinger is perceived, was that I wanted to capture that youthful idealism, which was unquestionably the dominant motive of his, of his early life. It's, it's what impels him when he goes to Harvard to study Immanuel Kant's philosophy. Uh, it's what impels him to become really quite a regular critic of U.S. foreign policy during the 50s and 60s. Uh, he's not criticizing policy as a realist, quite the reverse. He's usually saying, you guys are selling out America's fundamental principles in what you're doing. How much of that comes from looking at the, at the World War II experience and world policy, and particularly American policy during that period, which was very Manichaean in its outlook, moving into this Cold War view, which was, you know, as Le Carre wrote, a kind of moral twilight, and the degree to which he tried to really make those two things work in his own mind intellectually? I think that's a good insight, that the really important intellectual influence on Kissinger was a man named Fritz Kramer, whom he got to know in the army. They were both exiles uh, from Germany, and Kramer was the more educated, older, had already studied at doctoral level, and it's Kramer who who says, look, we're, we're fighting against this totalitarian regime, but don't forget, we're in partnership with another one, the Soviet Union. And there's, uh, there's an amazing moment in, in the story when, just as the war is ending, uh, Kissinger and Kramer get to the River Elbe, and on the other side are the, are the Russians, and they... Um, they they meet the their allies, and of course this is this is the moment when Kissinger realizes, oh no, you know we we're we're defeating one totalitarian regime, but there's another one about to step in and and take control of a large chunk of Europe, including of course a large chunk of Germany. So I think for many people in Kissinger's generation, but especially for the exiles, there was a continuity, and it's a while before that generation really believes there isn't going to be World War III really soon. I, I'm very struck by the fact that when you get to the outbreak of the Korean War, and uh, Kissinger is just uh, graduating uh, with his undergraduate degree, with his bachelor's degree, days before it begins, for many people in that generation, this was the beginning of World War III. And they spend most of their adult lives trying to avoid World War III, but feeling that it could break out. Going back to something you said earlier, we forget that. The generation of 1968, the, the people who were students in 68, 
who then revolted against the Vietnam War and revolted against the establishment, were too young to remember 1945. And they really didn't understand that for Kissinger and indeed Nixon and anybody who had served, uh, that the possibility of World War III was a very real one, and you should be prepared to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid it. And if that meant doing nasty things in small countries, you did them because there was this higher priority. Kissinger says in 57, most of the choices in the Cold War will be between evils, and our challenge will be to choose the lesser evil. I think that's absolutely right. He got that, and his whole career bore out the fact that the choices would be between evils. For his critics, it's easy to say, you did evil. They never asked the question, did you avoid a greater evil in doing so? 57 was, was right after Sputnik. Talk a little bit about the, the sense of the world at that point, the way the Cold War was beginning to, to really define itself. Sputnik's an amazing moment mm-hmm. because it suddenly brings home to the American public that the Soviets are able to compete technologically with the United States by beating the U.S. Uh, in the race to get an unmanned satellite uh, orbiting Earth. And I think it's a very important wake-up moment. Mm -hmm. Up until that time, most Americans took for granted their economic superpower status and took for granted their technological lead over the rest of the world. World War II appeared to vindicate that view because it was the United States that had made all the major advances during that war, or nearly all of them, and it certainly had come up with the ultimate weapon, the, the atomic bomb. So there's this panic that actually these Russians uh, with their crazy communist system can match us and even beat us in technology. Uh, They can close the nuclear gap. And indeed, it's around about that time that everybody starts convincing themselves that there's a missile gap and the Soviets actually are ahead in the nuclear arms race, which was completely untrue. I mean, they were nowhere near uh, matching U.S. capability uh, in nuclear weapons in 1957. But people very firmly got it into their heads. And that's, I think, why nuclear weapons and foreign policy is such a bestseller, because Kissinger comes along uh, with his gravelly uh, Central European accent and, uh, and tells Americans the situation's really bad, and, and we have to have some alternative to uh, capitulation on the one side or blowing up the world on the other side. And so the argument then that he makes is we need to have the option of limited nuclear war for many people at the time and since that's sort of Dr. Strangelove talking. Uh, But I think it's fascinating that that's what makes him famous. He's arguing for what seems a terrifying strategic option at a time of great national insecurity. How much of that also came out of the American belief at the time that we could win the Cold War by virtue of technology, that we may not have had as many troops or as many tanks as the Soviets, but the technology was really the leading edge for America, and Sputnik really turned that on its head. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, there was, I think, uh, a widespread belief that it was a competition between economic systems and that you were essentially pitting capitalism against communism. And the reasonable assumption was that capitalism would win, and I think people started to doubt that because... Uh, in the period of post-war reconstruction, uh, the Soviets appeared to be growing at spectacular rates, and they appeared capable of matching 
American technological feats. Now, of course, they were matching those feats partly through espionage because they were able to steal uh, technological secrets, particularly with respect to atomic weapons, uh, through their spy network. But uh, from the vantage point of the ordinary public, Sputnik is this uh, wake-up call, this warning that actually the race is a real one and the Soviets maybe because of their ruthless authoritarian system, might be able not just to catch up with the United States, but to overtake it. And Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader's message was, we will bury you, we will overtake you. Um, and uh, although Richard Nixon sort of counters in his role as, as vice president, going to Moscow and showing Khrushchev the first color television, that actually the United States is far ahead in terms of consumer goods and living standards, that's not entirely convincing at the time. It was absolutely true. And indeed, the Soviets never caught up in terms of consumer goods and living standards. But when it came to weaponry, they did catch up. And ultimately, by the time that Kissinger came to power uh, in 69, the missile gap was closing. And in the course of the 1970s, the the Soviet nuclear arsenal grew larger, a lot larger than the American one. How much of the perception of Kissinger and his policy was shaped by Kissinger's personal attributes and his personal quest for power and the way he had manipulated his benefactors along the way, whether it was Rockefeller or Nixon or whomever, that, that in many ways that in affected the judgment of Kissinger's policy? I think that's a very important question. Walter Isaacson's biography, which was published some years ago now, uh, based mostly on interviews and, and some, some documents, portrays Kissinger as a ruthless, scheming, manipulative individual who's determined to get to the top. And it took me a long time to break free of that characterization. But there suddenly came a moment as I was working my way through the material when I thought this just doesn't compute because, for one thing, it seemed very odd that, that somebody who was hell-bent on getting into power would stick to Nelson Rockefeller through three election cycles, three bids for the Republican nomination, each one unsuccessful. I started to wonder why it was that Kissinger was so loyal to somebody who seemed doomed uh, politically to fail, doomed by his, uh, his, his wealthy background, doomed by his fundamental centrism politically. And I thought this, this may in fact be explicable in different terms. Maybe in reality, Kissinger was uh, motivated by something other than naked ambition, that he saw in Rockefeller somebody whose centrist uh, politics uh, appealed to him, who shared a certain uh, view of the Cold War with him. It's very interesting that Kissinger avoids Nixon, that Kissinger is more likely to talk to Democrats than to far-right Republicans, right the way through the 50s and 60s. Nixon reaches out to Kissinger, I think, in 1960, and Kissinger avoids him and, and avoids taking the meeting, doesn't actually meet Nixon until late 1967. And, and that makes my book partly a whodunit, a kind of mystery, because there's something really puzzling about Nixon's decision to offer Kissinger the job of national security advisor at the end of 1968, when they had really been uh, on opposing sides within the Republican Party for more than a decade. What did you come to believe was what Nixon saw in Kissinger that appealed to him? 
that's that's part of what makes it a whodunit. It's really hard to figure that out because I was sure I would find some evidence of early communication between them and that I'd be able to tell the story in a new way. But there was none. As I mentioned, when Nixon reaches out to Kissinger, Kissinger actually avoids him. When Nixon seeks advice from Kissinger's mentor at Harvard, a man named William Yandel Elliott, Elliott says, oh, well, there are all kinds of people you should talk to, but don't talk to Henry Kissinger. By that time, Elliott had grown jealous of his pupil's success. So, so the, the best answer turns out to be that, that Nixon read Kissinger's work. And I mean, I joke about this, that the thing you most want to hear when you're a professor and you meet someone at a cocktail party is, I've read one of your books. And whenever anybody says that to me, I immediately light up. <laughs> and uh, in fact, it's the first thing that Henry Kissinger ever said to me, I've read one of your books. And I, that's the first thing that Richard Nixon ever said to Henry Kissinger, I've read one of your books. And I think Nixon had read more than nuclear weapons and foreign policy. I know he'd read that, but he, he had read other things too. And I think had come to realize that he and Kissinger were on the same page about the foreign policy the United States needed to pursue to get itself out of the mess that it was in by the end of the Johnson administration. So I think it was fundamentally a kind of intellectual affinity that brought them together, not any strong personal rapport. In fact, the relationship was always a slightly awkward one, but it was a real intellectual affinity. And that's why when they sat down to work on the strategic problems of 1969, they very quickly formed a partnership that was, of course, not ultimately successful because nobody was going to solve the Vietnam problem, but it, it achieved a huge amount, not least the opening to China in 1972, which is one of the turning points in the, in the Cold War. There is this sense that Kissinger provided intellectual cover for Nixon, that Kissinger intellectualized what Nixon understood from much more, really, of a real politics, cynical worldview. Well, I think Nixon had his own intellectual farpar. I mean, we forget, because of his disgrace, that he was a, a highly intelligent man. If you read his analysis uh, of uh, the Asian political situation uh, in foreign affairs in, I think, 68, you realize that he, he was a formidable intellect in his own right. And the strategic concept that you should exploit the Sino-Soviet split, get the Chinese onto your side, and thereby weaken the Soviets, that insight was as much Nixon's as it was Kissinger's. But I think Nixon understood that the Harvard professor had something that he, Nixon, could never have, and that was the sort of intellectual seal of approval of the Ivy League. And, mm. and that did appeal to Nixon, who always had a chip on his shoulder because he hadn't been able to go to Harvard because of his family's circumstances. He'd had to stay in California. And, and Nixon had a massive chip on his shoulder. He always felt he was looked down on by the Ivy League establishment. And here, having his own Harvard professor was sort of a finger in, in the eye of his, of his critics. I want to come back to 1965 and Kissinger's trip to Vietnam, the diary that, that you found of his trip to Vietnam, and Kissinger realizing in 65 that the war was unwinnable. That, for me, was one of the most startling finds in his private papers, that he had 
uh, gone as early as 65 to Vietnam, that he'd traveled widely in South Vietnam. He hadn't just sat in Saigon. He'd gone to the front line. He'd met with people at all levels of the American operation. He had met with uh, South Vietnamese uh, political leaders. He really did his due diligence. And then he wrote a report that was absolutely damning, that said, this is simply a military disaster. We can't win it. Our entire strategy is flawed. We have no coordination between agencies. And uh, we're going to have to get out of this by diplomatic means. That's a very, very early and accurate insight. Uh, and it, it explains a lot of what follows. So by the summer of 67, he's in Paris trying to begin negotiations with the North Vietnamese unsuccessfully. But I think in good faith, trying to establish that process of negotiations that he would later spend so much of his, his time on uh, in the early 70s. I, I certainly see Kissinger's impulse being to try to wind up this disastrous war without, without capitulating. And I think it's very important to remember that in January 1969, when he enters the White House, Nobody considers capitulation as an option. Certainly nobody that was likely to be in a position of, of responsibility. You've got to somehow get the North Vietnamese to negotiate an acceptable peace. The problem is they're not prepared to do that. They, and we know this from the North Vietnamese archives. Right the way through, they really think they're going to win, and all they have to do is hang in there and stonewall in the negotiations and withstand the U.S., bombardment, ultimately they will prevail. So ultimately nobody can really get the United States out of Vietnam with honor. That's the problem, because they're up against an implacable and invincible foe. Nobody's ever going in that sense to be able to pronounce the Nixon administration as success in foreign policy terms. I don't think anybody really could have succeeded in extricating the US from Vietnam with honor. But Kissinger certainly uh, did all that he could to do that. And that included uh, massive use of air power. That's a central issue uh, that comes up again and again. It mm -hmm. will be something I deal with in volume two. And it's not something that I'm quite ready to kind of pass judgment on. But, but it is worth saying that if you had fought World War II, if you had come to Germany in 44, 45, and you had seen the effectiveness of all that bombardment, you would be likely to think it would work against North Vietnam. Neil Ferguson, the book is Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist. It is just out in paperback from Penguin. Neil, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.